the end of chapter 11. We're going to finish up chapter 11 today, and actually we're finishing up uh, the first major section in the book of Romans in that what's been happening, Paul has laid out the indicatives He's laying out the gospel, and then in in chapter 12 and following, he's going to lay out how the gospel changes our lives. So much like Ephesians, where um, you see it broken down into the first three chapters for the gospel and what God has done for us, and the the three chapters, four through six, are the implications or the therefores of the gospel. What should my life look like being in Christ and being in His grace? So we're going to... We're going to see what Paul, where Paul has a hallelujah moment as he looks back on God's mercies to us in Christ and prepares us then to look forward in chapter 12 as to how we should therefore live because these things are true. So I'm just going to read verses 33 to 36. We won't need to do a lot of review in the introduction because a lot of the sermon will be that. So I'm going to read these and move forward. But. Look how Paul concludes, not just chapters 9 through 11, where he's talking about sovereignty and salvation and salvation of Jew and Gentile and how all that works together, but as he's looking back over everything he's covered from chapter 1 on and rejoicing in God. So God's Word in in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of... And the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. May your spirit illumine and apply your word as it is preached. Help me to preach your word in the power of the spirit as the very word of God. Help us to hear it in the power of the spirit as the very word of God. Help us to attend it with the due diligence of the fact that it is the Word of God. You have much to teach us through this section of Scripture, as with all sections. So empower me to preach it. Empower us to hear it. Bring to faith those who don't know you. Plant gospel seeds. Nurture and grow your children. Do what you will and what you know is necessary in each heart with this, your Word. So we pray for your blessing on the preaching as well as the hearing of your word. Do what only you can do, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Wow! Oh my! Or in the south, oh my goodness! Things that we say when we're struck with awe. Maybe the first time you saw what, who, the person who would be your spouse. Wow. That certainly happened to Adam, didn't it? Go read Genesis chapter 2. Maybe the first time you saw the ocean. Whoa. How about a beautiful sunset? Or a starry night? I remember this one particular starry night. We were camping in Hunting Island um, down on the coast of South Carolina, the state park there. And as was my habit when we would camp, um, Cindy would go to bed and I would go to the beach. I just like to sit out in a chair in the dark. But most of the time going to the beach in places that we would go, it was different than this place because they were really strict about turning lights off at night and about the turtles and everything. So the lights would be, all the surrounding lights would, would be off, not much light pollution. 
So as I, I kissed Cindy goodnight and I grabbed my chair and I went walking through the campground down this little winding path on this wooden walkway, and as soon as I got to the steps and cleared the trees, it just took my breath away. I had never seen a sky like that. There was no light pollution. And I mean, just clear the Milky Way and all of these stars that you could clearly see. And when I caught my breath, I just pirouetted and went right back to the camper. And I woke her up and I said, don't be mad. It's worth it. Just follow me. And it was worth it, wasn't it? We, I had never seen a light, a night like that in a place with low light pollution and seen the sky like that. So, <clears throat> as we'll use this word, I love this word, I was gobsmacked <clears throat> by that starry night. But think about this too. Uh, a lot of ways to get an awesome view of something. Mountain climbers often have an awesome view. I'm not sure it's worth the risk and the work in that point, but anyway. But mountain climbers regularly get a benefit of a great view. But here's what I want you to know this morning. You're all mountain climbers. You are mountain climbers. What do you, what, what do you mean? We've been following the Apostle Paul up the ascent of a doctrinal gospel mountain since we started studying the book of Romans. This is not a ladder the way we climb ourselves to heaven, but this is just a a figure, an analogy of the doctrine that we've been seeing, this gospel doctrine that's causing Paul to have this little hallelujah fit. See, he's been leading us up Mount Redemption. And today we see his reaction as, see, we're coming up behind him. And as he comes up first and maybe pirouettes and looks at the view, we're seeing his reaction to what he looks back on, which is the plan of redemption expressed in the book of Romans that we've been studying. His response was, wow. And I hope that will be. Our response as well. So straight to the main point. God's amazing grace causes us to look back on our redemption with a humble awe that gives all the glory of God. God's amazing grace causes us to look back on our redemption with a humble awe that gives all the glory of God. So let's look first at the wow of redemption. You can't see it, uh, but that little word O in verse 33 is really just one letter. Omega, you've, you've heard of Omega, Alpha and Omega. It's the Omega. This particle here being used for as an exclamation in the original. O, and it's not a passionless O, right? It's not, it's not like O. But it's, it's I mean, O. That's why I'm using the word wow. It's an expression of awe and deep admiration. Like when we say wow that way. I used the word gobsmacked a while ago, but in a good way. That means utterly astonished. Speechless, maybe. All you can say is wow. That's what that little word communicates. There's a lot of passion in that letter right there that begins verse 33. He is very excited about what he sees that God has accomplished in his plan of redemption. So look at, look at verse 33 and we'll sort of look at it. He says, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of the riches. And the ESV here says, oh, the depth of the riches. And it kind of separates with riches. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. But if you have another translation, it might say something like this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And I think that's better here. 
That's more the idea. We're not just taking riches and and extracting it from what's in there, but the riches of his wisdom, of his knowledge, what he's seeing uh, in the way that God has worked out his plan of redemption. He's seeing, he's, he's seeing like we do when we stand on the banks of the ocean, we see a small piece of this great body of water. We can only see a piece of it, but through revelation, he knows what it is. It's the, the, the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God in the outworking of redemption. So what Paul is doing is if you use the mountain analogy, he's up on the precipice and he's looking down the mountain and he can see everything he's covered in the letter about the plan of redemption. And that's what has him gobsmacked. The infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. Look look at the rest of verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. See, Paul is astounded by the very same thing the angels are astounded by. Go read 1 Peter in verse 12, where it talks about our redemption. It says that even the angels desire to look into these things. But there's no way for us to look into these things on our own. We have to have revelation. See, God in God there's a deep and an infinite knowledge and wisdom. So what is wisdom? You don't want to overly disconnect the two here. But wisdom is the right use of knowledge, isn't it? The wisdom is the ability to use our knowledge for the best end. To have the best plan that ends in the best place. And using everything we know to get there. Well, God has an infinite wisdom and knowledge. It's infinitely beyond our searching out. That's part Paul uses the word. I love this word too. He says unsearchable. On our own, we can't plumb the depths or search it, uh, of God's wisdom. And he says, how inscrutable. How inscrutable. It means it's impossible. The word means it's impossible to understand or interpret. On our own, there is no way for us to understand or interpret God's wisdom. We're not equipped for that. We weren't created to be God. (laughs) We're created to be man, woman, creature, dependent upon God. Some of us want to be God. There is a God. I've said this before and it's not original with me. There is a God and it's not you. (laughs) And the quicker you learn that, the better off you'll be. The Greek word behind inscrutable here, it means this. It's impossible to understand on the basis of careful examination or investigation. God's wisdom and knowledge, the riches of it, the depth of it, is impossible for us to comprehensively understand on the basis of investigation. So if your stance is, God, I'll believe in you when I have you figured out, Good luck with that. Listen, here's the point. Without revelation, we would never figure this out. Without God revealing Himself and revealing His wisdom and revealing sufficiently, not exhaustively, we couldn't take that, sufficiently His salvation to us. Without His revelation... We would never figure out redemption. You can learn a lot of things looking at the creation. And there's enough proof to hold you without excuse for claiming not to believe in God, even in a creation. We can see His existence and His divine power. But one thing we don't see by looking at creation is the cross. We don't see redemption by looking at the trees. We don't see hope for sinners without revelation. So Paul is looking back on revelation. He's looking back on how God has revealed himself in his word. He's looking back on what he has so far taught the Romans through this epistle. And that's what he's going, wow, over. Did you know as a Christian you should never grow beyond the wow? Oh, we do, don't we? We mature into 
No, that's why we're not living in the gospel every day. We should always freshly. And, and listen, don't look for feelings. Feelings come and go. And the more you chase them, the more they go. It's like happiness. Just chasing happiness, guess what? It's like a, a rabbit on the end of the string that the dogs chase in the dog race. You know what? They don't never catch it. Because I'm focused on myself and a feeling. Focus on God. And have this spirit-filled wow that trusts Him and waits on Him. But let's look back quickly at Mount Redemption. That's my figure. I'm calling it that. Where we've come in Romans. And we'll, we'll do this quickly. Uh, I told you that the sermon would probably be three hours. Don't worry. I promise you it won't be any longer than two. Um, <laughs> kids, don't worry. But do you remember where we've come from? Paul wrote in his letter that he wanted to come to the Roman church and preach the gospel. So see, the gospel is for believers and non-believers. But he wanted to come preach the gospel to them. And he's laying out in this book the gospel that he preaches. And he gave the thesis statement. The power of God for the salvation of Jew and Gentile is this gospel of righteousness. Through faith. That was in 116 and 17. And then starting in verses, verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, we're at the base and early ascent of Mount Redemption, aren't we? And listen, this is a scary place. This is enveloped with dark clouds and it's stormy and there's thunder and lightning at the base. Why? Reminding us of Mount Sinai. God's presence of judgment is there. God is holy and man is sinful. Jew and Gentile, none good, none does good, none seeks God, none deserves anything but condemnation. So as we begin Paul's preaching of the gospel, what are you doing, Paul? This is supposed to be good news, and yet you're, you're taking us through this dark, scary place where God calls us all sinners and shows us that we deserve condemnation. You don't have a gospel without that. Good news must understand the bad news first. Jew and Gentile are under just condemnation. And we must be walked through that. Listen, if you have a preacher that you're listening to that will never talk about hell, will never talk about sin, will never talk about condemnation, just gives you five ways to have a prettier porch or a better marriage or run for your life. He might be well-spoken and have pretty teeth and drive a big car and live in a big fat house, but he's leading people astray. Because if you won't preach the holiness of God, if you won't preach sin, you have no gospel. What is the gospel? Jew and Gentile are under just condemnation. And listen, in this first ascent of Mount Redemption, it's a scary place and it's supposed to be. But we stick close behind the Apostle Paul as he leads us through. He did this to the Ephesians as well, didn't he? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, or you can just look at the slides if you don't want to flip. But he wants the Ephesians to remember who they were. And see, that's what Paul's doing for the Roman church in the midst of maybe there are unbelievers there who are hearing this read who will come under con uh, conviction <clears throat> and come to faith. But Paul tells the church in Ephesus as part of that first section of his epistle, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And look at this, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a good summary of what we saw in Ephesians 1. I mean, in Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20, isn't, isn't it? But thankfully, God didn't leave us there. He could have justly saved no one, left us all under condemnation, right? <clears throat> but we're still sticking close to the Apostle Paul. And suddenly we break through the clouds into the peaceful sunlight of justification by faith alone. Thankfully, there's a, there's a Romans 3.21 
to the end of chapter 5 that tells us about justification by faith alone. Sola fide. There's grace for sinners. Christ came to save righteous people. There are none apart from Him. Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul would say, as whom I am chief. So we've broken through those dark and scary clouds into the glory of justification. And it's not based on our works, but on Christ's works of living for us and dying for us and being raised from the grave. You remember your definition of justification, right? Westminster Shorter Catechism 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Wherein, there's two elements here. Wherein He pardons all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And we have life by looking to Him. Why did He come to live before He died? As the Son of God. God, man, one person. He came and lived under His own law to fulfill that law because His people had broken it. And then He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, which is condemnation and wrath. And He could drink that cup dry because He was God and man in one person. And He passed into the grave and through the grave and was raised for our justification. God so loved the world, or literally God loved the world in this way. This is how God loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him or into Him, whoever has faith in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's more than just mentally believing the facts of the gospel. It is that. But if the Spirit's at work in us, we come to that third and crucial element of trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation this morning? Today can be that day for you. Look, we read the scary stuff in Ephesians. Let's read 4 through 9 in Ephesians 2. In the context of all being by nature children of wrath, he says this, and aren't you thankful? Verse 4, but God. Look there, we get riches again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. When? Chapter 1, verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul can't help it. He's got to make the point. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, that we be trophies of His grace. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And kind of a summary here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Look, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? This entire grace by faith salvation. This bringing you from death to life through the preaching of the gospel so that you turn and trust in Christ. That's all a work of His grace. You didn't figure it out on your own. Look at that. For by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Wow. You mean salvation for me is a free gift? Yes. Will you receive it? Faith is the hands that receive it. Will you trust in Christ alone? Will you trust in this depth of wisdom and knowledge and riches that Paul is rejoicing over that points us to Jesus as the only way to salvation? If you will have salvation, you will have it in Christ. Or you won't have it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. So we're ascending. We've broken through. We've got some relief. We're in the sunlight of justification by faith alone. But as we continue to ascend Mount Redemption, the air gets a bit thin. And we struggle for breath. We know we're supposed to obey God, but we feel we do not have the strength. What will we do? 
Well, praise God, he didn't stop with justification. Now we, we hit the plateau of sanctification. In, in chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1 to 8, 39, we have the glorious doctrine of sanctification. As we ascend into this level, we are equipped for the climb with gospel oxygen and strength. We're reminded of our union with Christ. Yes, we're called to holiness, but we will walk in a growing holiness because we've been united to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We've died to the reign of sin if we're in Christ. So we will grow in grace. So we're in union with Christ, which means we're forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we dwell. Think about Romans chapter 8. We dwell in the inseparable love of God in Christ. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from His love. Wow. What is sanctification then? Our other question, number 35. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. See, it's still God's work in us. Whereby we are renewed. See, there are two aspects here. Renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled, watch, more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. It's God's work in us. And that's what Paul says. Look, if we're going through Ephesians 2 in verse 10. It says, we are His workmanship. He did it. We're born again because of Him. Right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created for good works that He prepared that we should walk in them. So we have the glorious doctrine of sanctification. Condemned sinners, saved by grace and grace alone, justified, declared righteous by God on the basis of His Son, Jesus Christ. And being grown in grace, God will complete the work that He has started. And then in chapter 9, 1 through eleven thirty-two, the glorious truth of Jew and Gentile inclusion. How will God save the world? What is going on here? I know Jesus is a Jewish Messiah and the, the people of the Israel were, were chosen. How, does the, how do we get plugged into all of that? So we get in chapter 9, 1 through eleven thirty two, the glorious truth of Jew and Gentile inclusion in redemption. God's sovereignty. Man's responsibility. God uses Jewish unbelief to save the Gentiles and Gentile belief to save the Jews. And He's wrapping all that together to, to create one new people, one new olive tree made up of Jew and Gentile. Salvation of a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language. Glorious redemption. I, I'm not going to read all of it. When you go home, you can read verses 11 through the end of the chapter. But in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm just going to pick up in verse 19. So then, speaking to the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's work of redemption. We know from Revelation, He will save a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. The application of His grace. We look back now with Paul. We're standing on the top. And we're looking back with Paul and the angels on Mount Redemption. And we say, wow, we would have never figured this out. There's no way to plumb the heights and depths of God's wisdom, knowledge, and plan. Oh, the depth of His wisdom. Listen to me. The Titanic is in a puddle compared to the wisdom and the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The Marianas Trench is, is a puddle. Right? The depths of space that you can see, small compared to His wisdom. We should have the wow when we look upon His grace. If the Spirit is at work in us, we will rest in His glorious grace. We will experience the wow of redemption. And this will fuel a life of love of God expressed in growing obedience, which is chapters 12 through 16. We'll talk about that later. Oh, it came back on. I see y'all fanning. 
This air was off, too. I don't know what's going on. Just bear with me. People in Africa don't even have air conditioning, and they go to church. So just pray for them and press in. We'll work on it. So that's the wow of redemption. How about the humility of redemption? Quickly. Look back in Romans chapter 11. In verses 34 to 35, he is, he is in a summary way teaching from quotes in Isaiah and Job here. And Paul often does that and brings scriptures together, summarizes, teaches what he knows about the Lord from other scriptures. But when the Spirit's at work, grace will amaze us. So that's the first question. Am I in awe of God's grace? Right? But it amazes us and it humbles us. See, we trust God and His wisdom in how He has worked out our lives. If the Spirit's at work in us, we will trust God and His wisdom in how He has worked out our lives. We will stop trying to tell Him how He could have done it better. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children that we might do all of His commandments, Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us. And everything has not been revealed to us. We couldn't take it. We have to trust. And we have to stop telling God how He could have done it better. Look in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the expected answer? Nobody. No one who's ever lived that's short of the Son of God. Not you. Not all of us together. On our own. Who has known the mind of the Lord? In No one. Who has been His counselor? Who is equipped to tell God what to do? We may not say it out loud, but we try to do that all the time, don't we? You know, the anonymous quote, if, if you gave me God's power, you'd see how much I would change. But if you gave me His wisdom too, you would see how I left everything the same. Nobody's qualified. We shouldn't be trying to tell God what to do. Why? Number one, we can't fully know God's mind. Why? Well, very simple answer. He's infinite and we're finite. He has no limits and we do. We can't figure out God or think we know what He should do. Think about this, and I've used this illustration before. God is infinite in the depth of His wisdom and knowledge, and we are finite. There's a limit to our understanding. There's no limit to His. So might His ways confuse us sometimes? Yes. So if you think about all of these walls in this room, Represent, and you cannot represent the infinite. But let's just play a game. These walls represent the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. So in comparison to God's infinite wisdom and knowledge, where might I show up on the graph? I can't make a point. Cindy, don't worry. I'm not going to write on the wall. I can't make a point small enough to show where I would show up. Put us all together and where would we show up? Still, no matter how big the finite is, the infinite is infinitely bigger. Sorry to get philosophical. So might the ways of God confuse us? Sometimes, yeah, they might. But it's only because we don't know things that He knows. We don't have His wisdom. We can't see all the ins and outs of what He's doing and why He's doing. And listen, He doesn't have to answer to us. And most of the reason why He won't is we couldn't get it if He did be like it'd be way worse than trying to explain nuclear physics to a two-year-old and don't tell me your two-year-old can understand because we are all put together an infinitesimal speck in comparison to him so what we should do is stop thinking we have him all figured out in verse 34b stop trying to tell him what to do who has been his counselor We can't tell him what to do. We are not qualified to be his counselor, though we try. We are fools. Listen, I want y'all, I'm not trying to run you off. 
But we are fools. We are absolute fools when we think we know better than God. John Talman said this, So deeply is pride rooted in the hearts of men that when they think wrong is done to them and complain if God does not comply with everything that they consider to be right. Listen, if God has to comply with everything we consider to be right, who's God in that situation? Not Him. You. And I, don't, I, know, I love you, but I don't want to live in a world where you're the God. And I'll say you this. You don't want to live in the world where I'm the God. Go ahead and say it. Yeah. One of my first verses that I memorized. Psalm. Psalm. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And what's the next part? Do not lean on your own understanding. Isn't that what we try to do? And worse than that, we try to make God lean on our own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, His rule, His wisdom. And He shall make your path straight or direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment. On your bones. Why does God tell us not to be wise in our own eyes and not to lean on our own understanding? Because we are this little speck and He is all of this. Do you want to know for sure that God loves you? There's one place to look. Thank you. The cross. No. Preach, brother. The cross is how we know God loves us. Not our feelings, not our circumstances, not whether or not everything goes the way we would want it to go. I know Jesus is real. He says, in this world you'll have trouble, but what's the second part of that? Be of good cheer, for I have overcome it for you. What does that mean? I will make it work for you. I don't make everything turn out the way you want it to. That would lead to disaster. See, we don't know that. But I'm going to make it work for you if you're my child bring you to faith and grow you in grace. The test of true faith is whether or not we trust God. If I'm trying to get God to jump through all my hoops, I don't trust God. That's why I hate prosperity theology. Plucking verses out of context and trying to nail them on God's forehead and make Him do what I want Him, what I want him to do. That's from hell. That's heresy. That's doctrines of demons. What are you saying? Exactly what you think I'm saying. And I'm not speaking against any of the Lord's anointed because the Lord's anointed don't teach crap like that. You need to listen to people that will tell you the truth. And I'm not putting myself up as the primary example, but people need, you need to listen to people who will tell you you're not everything. That you can't figure it all out and it won't all go the way you want it to go. In fact, a lot of life will look like a disaster sometimes, but he's in control and he'll make it work for you and use you for his glory, even in the midst of that. Now, I know you can't feel stadiums talking like that, but that's how the word talks. (coughs) Trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Look at verse 35. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who holds God in debt? If I'll just do this, he'll have to do that. Really? This verse says God does not owe us anything good. We can't make him do what we want him to do. And listen, if we're thinking right, we don't want it that way. Because that means we're ruling, not him. Entrust your pain to Him. I don't say wash it away and act like it never happened. But entrust it to Him. Run it to the cross. Look at the pain He suffered for you. And God brought the ultimate good out of that cross. That shows us, we can't get the details yet, but how He's going to bring the ultimate good out of whatever this thing is you're suffering with as well. God owes us, God doesn't owe us anything good. He would have been just and holy to save no one. Yet He gave us everything good in Jesus. 
And He gives us many good things in this life. Don't you realize? Look at me. Some of you are never coming back. I understand. You should be in hell right now. You should be in hell right now. You might think you are, but you're not. Amazing grace. And if you're in Christ, you have everything in Christ. But see, we have to get that perspective. We have to believe that dark and stormy place that we talked about so that the rest of this shines as this bright light that it is. Why am I pressing you this morning? Stop grumbling and find rest in the grace in Christ. Be real about your pain with God and share it with the church and we pray. Yeah, yeah. But just place it under this depth of infinite wisdom and riches of God's knowledge. Place it underneath the cross so that you can walk through it and keep trusting Him. And knowing that He's working as hard as it is and as possible as, impossible as it seems. He's working in and through this thing for His glory and your good. And it will make you more like Jesus. Replace pride with humility and worry with worship. Wow. See, when you see the bare events as they take place in this world, many of which are hard to deal with if you're just looking at those events. But when we, what we can only see by faith is that God is somehow working every one of these events into his master plan, his saving plan, in his glory in Christ. So his grace should amaze us. And it should humble us. And then lastly, the glory of redemption. Never forget this trek up Mount Redemption. Live in the wow that comes from amazing grace. Look at verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, all things being everything. Right? To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salvation is of the Lord. And you are included in this if you're trusting in Christ. What we have here in this one verse is soli deo gloria. Right? Give all the glory of God, both in your heart and in your life, because you deserve condemnation, and yet He has given you grace. He has worked out this redemption in His Son for the good of His people. You say, well, I'm not His people. Well, you can be. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. And if you are His people, maybe this sermon will help us be more amazed by Him and more trusting of Him. I don't know. But we have a responsibility as His creatures to give Him all the glory. Why? Psalm 103, 8-12, we've been working on that. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, covenant love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That's why I was saying we should be in a place of condemnation if He did that, but He doesn't. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him, who trust Him, who will rejoice in Him. As far as the east, look at this. This is how we know his steadfast love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's why I say you can look to the cross and know that he loves you. See, everything we've been studying in the book of Romans so far is just peeling open this gospel nugget that was given by the angel to Joseph when Jesus was conceived. And he said, you shall call his name Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. The Lord is salvation. And that salvation is found in Him. A few points of application and I'm done. Are you in awe of God's grace? Listen, if you're not in awe of God's grace, it just means you think too much of yourself. You haven't... If we really, I mean, think about John Newton, slave trader, 
all of the things that he was saved and used mightily. And he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, God should have left us in, in that first dark place that we talked about from verse 18 to 320. But he didn't. He saved. And that's what Newton is rejoicing over. See, we will never... Listen, why is this important? We will never live for His glory if we're not wowed by His grace. We'll keep living for our glory. But if the Spirit is at work in you, and if He's at work in me, I will be blown away by His grace. I will be gobsmacked. Once I, listen, once you see who you truly are and what you truly deserve, that from a holy and righteous God you deserve that condemnation, and that is just... Once you get that, oh, it, it, really, the, it's downhill from there. That means the Spirit's at work in you, convicting of your sin, showing you your need of a Savior outside of yourselves, and pointing you to the mercy to be found in Christ. And as a believer, you look back on that, and as we're standing up here looking on everything that's been taught in the book of Romans, we say, wow, amazing grace. We'll be ama- the title of the sermon, we will be amazed by grace If the Spirit is at work. Number two. Has grace humbled you so that you joyfully submit to God's wisdom in your life? I see it, God. You are infinite in wisdom and knowledge. No things didn't turn out the way I would wish them to. But look where I am. So I'm going to trust all that to you. And rejoice in your grace and your love. And whether I ever understand that. Or not, I know that you are for me and with me. So I'm going to trust in your wisdom and not my own. See, that's the, that's the point Joseph came to, isn't it? Think about Joseph and God if he had given him a dream and he was going to rule over his brothers and he, he shared that dream and that got him in a lot of trouble. And then he was, went through a lot of suffering and it seemed like a lot of wrong was done to him. But God was taking him to that throne that, that, where he would use him to save both his people and a lot of others. So in the end, Joseph could say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I'm trusting all that to God's wisdom because I see where I am now and I see what he's doing in me and with me. If you have Christ, what are you complaining about? See, for me to live a life of grumbling as God's child... Now, I'm not saying don't take your pain and all before the Lord. We see the psalmist doing that. You know the difference between that and grumbling. But if I'm grumbling, I'm not trusting. And if, I'm grum- if I have Christ and I'm living a life of grumbling, what I'm really saying to Jesus is, yeah, that cross was great, but that's not enough for me. May God's grace be at work in us so that we never think or say such a thing. Trust it to Him. He has delivered you. Rest, but only the humble can rest. Pride will never lead us to rest. Don't think you have to have it all explained to you or all figured out before you go and trust with it. Because it's never going to work out that way. So be amazed by His grace and be humbled by His grace. And then the last point of application. Do your lips and your life express glory, express glory to your gracious God? Do your lips and your life, growingly, I should say growing, we're growing in it. Do your lips and your life growingly exp- express glory to your gloriously gracious God? Because that's how Paul ends here. Wow, look at this. Look at his sovereignty. Look at his wisdom. Look at his power. Look at his knowledge. Look how he's working out the salvation of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. From him. He's the source of it. Through him. He attains it. To him are all things. He's the ultimate goal. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You'll never enjoy him without grace about being awed by His grace and humbled by His grace and living a life like we sang in the song earlier, to His glory. Giving God glory is more, 
than what we know and say. It's also how we live. And we'll see that in chapters 12 through 16. So in conclusion, we started, talk, we started out talking about wow moments in our lives. The ocean, spouse, ocean, sunset, mountaintop views. And listen, in our lives, in our normal lives, when we have one of those transcendent moments, when we have one of those moments of, of awe, we want to stay there and live there, don't we? But that's not real life. We've got to come down off the mountain. We've got to come back into the intermission. But this is a mountain you can live on. Mount Redemption, you never have to come down from. You never have to leave. You can always enjoy your God and His grace. And it will transform you as you live in the confidence of His love. You will be able to sing every day with John Newton. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Live the humble, wow life of giving God the glory. And it's all because of His grace. So be humbled and amazed by His grace and live joy, joyfully for His glory. As this text ends, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those of us who know You to be refreshed. To be refreshed in this awe of Your undeserved favor in Christ. To be freshly awed by it and and wowed by it. And to be freshly humbled by it. And may it lead to a fresh dedication of pressing into joyfully because of Your grace, living for Your glory. And I pray for maybe many who are, some who are here and maybe will hear over the live stream or the recording that don't know You. That You give them eyes to see and ears to hear. That You would cause them to be born again so that they will turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you feel that work and you feel that tug in your heart, of conviction of sin, of need of Christ. Today is the day. God commands all people everywhere to repent because He's given His Son and He will judge the world through His Son on that great day. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will be saved and be able to be amazed and humbled and dedicated by His grace. Bless us, Lord. Christ, may You be our vision. May our hearts be focused on You so that we lay aside everything that entangles and run this race with endurance. Save and sanctify Your people, Lord. We give You all the praise.